Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we talk with Ann Lee, author of What the U.S. Can Learn from China and Will China's Economy Collapse? We talk about her background with China, why she left Wall Street, and how predicting the economic crash of 2008 garnered her the respect of Chinese policymakers and U.S. academia alike. We talk about her book, What the U.S. Can Learn from China and Why It Was So Popular in China, as well as dozens of other nations around the world. We also talk about a few myths and misconceptions involving China, including tech transfer policies that have been widely misconstrued for several years now, a conversation that should hopefully alleviate concerns for foreign brands going into China. We talk about whether companies need to be extra careful doing business in China and segue into discussing her second book, Will China's Economy Collapse, including why she wrote the book and how the obviously bombastic title came to be. Lastly, but perhaps more importantly, we discuss the coronavirus and the potential impact it will have on businesses not just in China but globally as this is a difficult time that will in one way or another affect us all. Enjoy. And back then there were at least 63 court cases that were brought against Chinese companies for IP violations and the Beijing Intellectual Property Court ruled in the foreign firm's favor in all 63 cases. So there was already IP protection long before the Trump administration came in and started saying there is no IP protection. I mean, it was a complete lie. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. And thanks for coming on the show today. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a real treat. Why don't we start with a quick synopsis of your background and work with China? Both my parents uh, were originally from China, but they both left when they were very young kids during China's Civil War. Uh, my dad uh, went to Taiwan um, with his grandfather and brother and became a Taiwanese citizen. Um, my mom uh, fled with her step parents um, down to the Hong Kong area. And so, um, so I actually didn't really know much about China until in my adult life. Uh, I used to work on Wall Street after business school, and I was in credit derivatives. And since I saw that there was gonna be a credit crisis coming, I elected to step out of Wall Street and into academia uh, right around 2006 and wait out the crisis. Uh, and it was in 2008, I was invited to be a visiting professor in Peking University uh, in Beijing. And uh, I was invited to teach uh, credit markets and credit derivatives there. 
And so when the credit crisis started to unfold uh, around the world, various Chinese policymakers caught wind that I was an expert in this area and proceeded to invite me into various policy meetings. And so I was meeting with uh, central bankers there, the Ministry of Finance, uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund members, uh, their Social Security Fund folks. So I spoke to a number of policymakers in China while I was a visiting professor there to help them navigate the financial crisis. And initially what I told them, uh, they were incredulous. They couldn't believe that people would buy credit derivatives um, and that it would cause such a global crisis. But uh, when the evidence started to roll in, um, they began to believe me and trust me more on my judgment of things. And so after my uh, my term there, I elected to return to New York. Um, I basically became a faculty member uh, over at New York University, uh, teaching macroeconomics and finance there. And I also joined a think tank who basically approached me and told me that they wanted to have a senior fellow um, focus on international relations. Uh, this is Demos, and um, and they thought that China would be uh, a logical place for them to kick off that programming for them. And so I uh, got the support of a think tank as well as NYU to write a book. Uh, various NYU folks at the in their PR department had said that they uh, like to have celebrity professors. And after I had published a few op-eds in mainstream newspapers that got a lot of attention, they encouraged me to write a book um, on China as well. So after my first book came out, which is called What the U.S. Can Learn from China, uh, it became a, a real hit all around the world. It was uh, you know, really well received, much better than I ever imagined. And um, and as a result, I was on television a lot. I was invited to speak all over the world about, uh, you know, what I'd written in the book. And this also caught the attention of the Chinese. They basically uh, bought uh, the foreign rights uh, for Chinese language of my book. And the publisher there uh, gave a copy of my book that uh, of the Chinese translation to every member of the People's Congress uh, in China. And, and this was the year um, right when Xi Jinping came into power. And so uh, I was told that he even has a copy of my book. Um, and so when that book launched in China, I was invited to do a book tour there as well, uh, connected to a lot of uh, policymakers uh, in China who uh, continue to basically want to stay in touch with me to this day. So, uh, so when they come to New York, I often get a, you know, a call from the Consul General to say that you know, uh, you know, they're various folks in town uh, would be, you know, would love to chat with me to find out my thoughts on, on all things U.S. and 
and then U.S.-China relations in general. So, so that's in a short <laughs> thumbnail sketch of what happened. Of you know, of my my history with the Chinese and um, and where I am today. Tell our listeners what they can expect when they read your book. What the U.S. can learn from China. Uh, it, it basically is a book that says that um, we should stop demonizing uh, this country. Uh, it, you know, we as a nation, as wonderful and as powerful as the U.S. is, uh, does not have a monopoly on all good ideas. And China, uh, as a civilization that's been around for 5,000 years, uh, clearly, you know, has a different approach to a lot of things Western. And some of the ways they approach things um, actually can make a lot of sense. And I based a lot of this from my observations while I was teaching there in China. And so I basically say that I don't agree with everything the Chinese government does. I don't endorse them wholeheartedly. I just basically said that there are aspects of what they do that I think uh, have been very effective and that it could, you know, work in other countries as well. And I give basically examples of how it could work in the U.S. And, um, and so I basically try to push a more open-minded uh, approach to life in general, really, um, in order for people to just not be so stuck in the way we've done things because uh, it's easy to just think that's the only way if that's the only way you're exposed to. But uh, if you are more open-minded and uh, see how other cultures approach various problems, then there might be better solutions at your fingertips. And so it was more or less uh, a, a book about trying to um, find a way forward past difficult problems, and um, and it's not an you know endorsement of China or U.S. or any other country. It's more or less just saying we should be uh, approaching life in a different way with more open eyes. Can you explain why your book was so popular with the Chinese when it seems from the outside looking in that it was actually written for the U.S. and its citizens? <laughs> True. It wasn't actually just popular with the Chinese. When it came out, I was surprised how popular it was with various Latin Americans, uh, as well as, um, you know, folks in Africa, even Europe. It's a very counter-conventional point of view, even back then, um, when, you know, U.S. and China supposedly were, you know, much closer together than they are today. Uh, but I saw cracks already happening um, back in 2011 when I was writing it. And I, uh, I think that the reason why it was popular with the Chinese is that they have they were just so criticized by the Americans for so long and, um, and have been told that, you know, they were, uh, you know, not 
as modern, not as uh, smart, not as capable, not as, you know, they just had this inferiority complex um, from their the history of the last 300 years where they had become a much weaker country from foreign domination, from wars, from, you know, all sorts of problems. And so here they are trying their hardest uh, to try to pull themselves back up um, and and lo, lo and behold, my book comes along and they feel like someone is giving voice to some of the things that they've been thinking. And they were, I think as a group, too, too afraid to say anything back then, um, to, to basically be proud of their accomplishments, to be, uh, to, you know, to have people acknowledge what they've done, I guess, was uh, something that they, you know, didn't expect and was very grateful for. So I think that's why it got a nice reception there, and as well as other parts of the world. As you mentioned, you saw the writing on the wall for what happened in 2008. Can you talk a little bit about what was going wrong in the U.S. that you thought might be fixed by what was going right in China? Well, so since I come from Wall Street into this, the most immediate thing that um, I saw back then was uh, the whole approach to the financial system. Um, The U.S. basically had uh, turned the entire economy, you know, upside down in terms of giving all the power to the financial institutions and all the uh, um, the the modes of production had been uh, you know moved away and has been allowed to just disintegrate and so it was like the tail wagging the dog because the u s became a superpower uh, through its industrial uh, revolution and became you know, a leader in technology in all these areas. But because of the financialization that went on uh, over the years, which started after Nixon went off the gold standard and suddenly uh, when you have a fiat currency where money can just be printed uh, without limits, frankly, uh, it just gave the Federal Reserve and the big banks in the U.S. way too much power. And suddenly it was, you know, the whole economy uh, was all about these financial transactions and how everything can be turned into a financial instrument. And so suddenly all the things that, you know, would make an economy strong um, disappeared. People, you know, used to invent a lot of amazing things. Uh, you know, we went through a period where people invented cars and planes and all sorts of stuff that helped uh, improve, you know, everyone's standard of living. Uh, suddenly, it was all about money and just, you know, people were getting really filthy rich, but in terms of how people's lives are actually improving from new inventions, there are very few. I mean, the internet was invented, and so that helped communications. But in terms of, like, you know, 
things that you can touch in your everyday life, like that didn't change so much. And I make that point in my book. And I basically saw that the Chinese had a very different uh, financial system in that it was all based on the real economy. And they were approaching it the way that the early founding fathers in the U.S. did, where, uh, you know, it was all about nation building. And that's what Alexander Hamilton wanted, you know, to create a central bank that would help build a nation by building infrastructure, by building uh, things that can help improve a society and, and, um, and, and let people, uh, you know, make a living in all kinds of areas and not let uh, the bankers run the show. And, and we used to have that in the U.S., and it, you know, basically got chipped away. And I basically was seeing that this was a huge mistake for the Americans, and I wanted to um, make that point. I devoted a chapter to that, actually, in my book. And so that was sort of the the starting point of where I saw, you know, there were opportunities for the Americans to relearn lessons that they could see happening with the Chinese. And here, you know, back in 2008, China was uh, still considered in the uh, low-tech world. They were obviously moving very quickly and and modernizing very quickly, but they had not moved into high tech world, but they were, they were already starting to innovate then. They were already um, learning how to make their manufacturing more efficient. They were doing all sorts of things that uh, a lot of Americans were not aware of. And it was because the population was all put to work in the real economy. And uh, and I just felt that, you know, Americans, you know, need to sort of wake up and, and see that there are a lot of other ways to run the global financial world. And um, and so that really, I think, was the spark of why I kind of wrote the book and um, where I, the, the, the initial lesson that I wanted to talk about. If you were to write a revised edition today, is there anything that you would change? Any chapters you would add or remove? I mean, when I think about the chapters in my book, I I actually wrote that book so that it would have a long shelf life. Mm. And I honestly don't think that there's anything there that is blatantly wrong or that wasn't um, stuff that has come to pass. I think the book is still quite relevant today because uh, the the themes I talk about there um, like in foreign policy you know I basically was saying that we should be lend more of a helping hand to developing countries and lo and behold since I published the book China had done the whole Belt and Road Initiative and the Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank and all you know, a lot of countries around the world have kind of joined in on that, and the U.S. is playing catch up and trying to compete to, you know, put out infrastructure project lending for these other countries to compete with China. I mean, that was basically what I wanted the U.S. to do back then, and now they're starting to do that, but probably not for all the right reasons. But still, um, I think that's a more 
productive use of money than to engage in forever wars that we've been in for you know the last few decades here as you and I both know, there are a lot of mistruths, myths, urban legends about China and doing business in China out there in the media. Why don't we tackle a few of those and set the record straight? Sure. I would say that a lot of people are fearful doing business in China because the Trump administration has said that uh, the Chinese do forced technology transfers. Mm. And I actually take issue with the whole terminology Mm. um, because, yes, there may be technology transfers, but it certainly was never forced. Um, These are very sophisticated CEOs that go and negotiate uh, deals with the Chinese if they choose to transfer technology, they do it with open eyes and with lawyers who, uh, you know, obviously review all the documents. So nobody ever put a gun to their head saying that you have to give this to the Chinese. That never, ever happened. So that, the term itself is so misleading. Um, And so if we're talking about, you know, the fact that a lot of countries and companies wanted access to China and were willing to make concessions to get it. Uh, this is very typical. This happens everywhere in the world, including, you know, in the U.S. So there was nothing exceptional about the way the Chinese were doing this. And in fact, uh, this was not only allowed under WTO rules, uh, it was actually encouraged because if you read closely at the WTO text, it was saying that developed countries had an obligation to transfer technology to developing countries because it's the whole idea that you want to teach a man how to fish, not just give him fish. If you can grow the economic pie that way by making everyone more skilled and operate a higher level, then the you know the global economy would grow more and everyone you know could spread the wealth more. And so this was in WTO rules, this was actually largely written by the US because the US was more or less spearheading this whole effort. And so a while back, the US actually was far more liberal probably um, in how they viewed the whole international global economy and how they wanted it run. And this sudden uh, you know, accusation coming from the Trump administration is a huge departure from what the U.S. did in the past. You know, this is them sort of you know, rewriting history in a way. And um, by suddenly accusing China of doing something supposedly sinister and illegal here um, is, I think, completely misleading. There are many other countries like India uh, and other developing countries that also did the same thing that China did. In fact, you know, IBM uh, in India or Coca-Cola in India, they're, they're all owned by the Indians. IBM and these other U.S. companies do not own that technology that they have transferred over to these countries. So I would say that this was completely a red herring. It's not something that uh, companies should be afraid of. Like you go in there with open eyes and you can negotiate whatever you want. Um, 
the Chinese are not forcing you to do anything um, against your will. So, and in fact, a lot of these negotiations basically enabled these foreign companies to succeed there because the Chinese would say, well, uh, you American company or Canadian company or whoever, yeah, you may have the IP, but we'll contribute the capital, we'll contribute the labor, we'll contribute uh, the distribution, the marketing, like they would contribute everything else to make the business succeed. And without all that, no business could succeed, right? So, and this brings me to the second point, the whole idea that, you know, China steals IP and that, you know, the IP is this all-powerful thing. Yeah. Right. Well, guess what? If you go to Silicon Valley, no venture capitalist is going to sign an NDA because, you know, they know that ideas are a dime a dozen. And uh, these ideas are useless unless someone can execute on it and turn it into a viable business. And which means that you have to have all the know-how of how to operate in a country and have the right management and have, you know, hire all the right people, have all the right customer client relationships. So, uh, so frankly, you know, the whole thing has been overblown and, and speaking of IP, I mean, China had already established IP courts back in 2014, 2015. And back then, there were at least 63 court cases that were brought against Chinese companies for IP violations. And the Beijing Intellectual Property Courts ruled in the foreign firm's favor in all 63 cases. So there was already IP protection long before the Trump administration came in and started saying there was no IP protection. I mean, it was a complete lie. So that seriously is um, something that needs to be corrected in people's minds. And frankly, the idea that the Chinese need to deal IP from the Americans, I think is, may have been true a number of years ago, uh, maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. But this past year, Huawei was the largest filer of patents worldwide. Huawei is, you know, China's telecom company, and nobody even comes close to uh, the technology that they've developed. And I could say this for a whole lot of other technologies that China has been embarking on, you know, whether it's their undersea tunnels, power transmission lines, whether it's their quantum computers. I mean, they are just, you know, going full speed ahead in a lot of high tech areas that are not relying on any U.S. IP or other IP uh, that they're stealing. In fact, they were basically inspired to do more of this IP because a few years ago they were just paying, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in IP royalties. And that's what motivated them to start inventing their own stuff. And they're starting to get there. And so I think, you know, the idea that they're going to steal from Americans is, again, very exaggerated and overblown. Why is China always being portrayed as the bad guy or the antagonist in a lot of these stories? And we don't consider other countries such as India. I think it's because China is uh, viewed as uh, U.S.'s closest peer competitor. India is just nowhere on the radar screen. Um, You know, Modi was, (laughs) when he got elected, it was a big victory for him just to, you know, make sure that uh, everyone had access to toilets. So 
you know, we're talking about completely different economies at this point because um, India still has a lot of uh, issues that are uh, very serious domestically that they would never, you know, appear to challenge anything in the existing world order, whereas uh, there are folks in the Department of Defense and the Pentagon that worry that China um, is advancing much more quickly and can catch up with the U.S. um, much sooner than India or anyone else. And this is where uh, the nervousness comes in because the Americans have been uh, the world superpower ever since World War II ended. And so for decades, you know, the U.S. really didn't have a really strong challenger. The closest one was the Soviet Union, and yet even that was exaggerated. So I think that the U.S. is so accustomed to calling all the shots all around the world that that they cannot imagine that they have to share a stage with any other uh, any other power. And so... Um, and so I think this is why uh, the rhetoric is so uh, antagonistic towards China. Um, China has not, uh, you know, threatened the U.S. in any material way. Uh, China has not fought in any war since 1979. Uh, I don't think it intends to. And uh, and I think that what's going on is that the U.S. basically. Uh, has these fears and they just project everything that they themselves do onto other people. And so even though there's no justification for it and no evidence of it. Do we need to adjust anything about the way that we do business if we're going to do business with China or in China? So doing business in China is like doing business anywhere else, like in the U.S. or You, you want to obviously... Uh, be careful. You got to do your due diligence. You've got to um, do your research clearly before you negotiate anything or choose to acquire anything or invest in anything. But um, but I don't see why it's so much more treacherous. Uh, I think that you know, having spoken to a lot of business people, you know, some people would say that. You know, doing business in India, democracy is more treacherous than doing business in China. And by many measures uh, that have been reported in all kinds of reports around the world, uh, you know, China was one of the most open of the BRIC countries. And China, you know, uh, basically basically honored a lot of uh, the the things that are considered norms in, in global commerce. And if there was an issue that uh, you think they violated and it was taken to the WTO and it was and WTO ruled in your favor, well, China would abide by the ruling immediately and correct whatever problems they were. So I'm not saying that uh, there are no problems. There clearly are. And with over a billion people there, you're going to run into bad eggs from time to time. Um, but that's true of any country. And so, uh, so I would say that it's just normal business. It's it's not anything um, out of the ordinary. 
the only thing I would say that is different about China is that it's just hyper competitive. There's so many people there that have great ideas and are educated and want to succeed. And there are relatively fewer regulations in China than there are in some Western countries that I would say it's almost too capitalistic in China. And so people that go to China have to be prepared for hyper competition. But I would say that it's been ranked as one of the, mo one of the most open countries in a lot of ways. And so, so that's actually good news. Because if you come to the U.S., there are easily more tariffs and tariff barriers in the U.S. than in China. Um, in fact, I think Fareed Zakaria had written a piece in Foreign Affairs saying that the United States um, was in a league of its own in terms of uh, non-tariff barriers that block competition in the U.S. from U.S. companies. So. Uh, so in terms of, you know, finding a real marketplace, uh, you know, China, I think, is probably one of the closest to that. And on top of it, it's a gigantic market um, with a very large middle class. And so it's very easy to um, be profitable, even if you get a really minute uh, market share there. So that's an interesting segue into our next topic, which is your next book titled Will China's Economy Collapse? Tell us about that book and tell us about how you landed on that title. That book came out in 2017. And in 2015, there were a lot of folks in uh, on Wall Street that believed that China was on the verge of collapse. Uh, there were some wild stock market swings in China that, um, you know, China authorities had to basically um, close the markets to keep it from falling. And a lot of the fear was coming from the fact that uh, people thought China was going to run out of currency reserves because uh, the authorities there decided that holding trillions of reserves um, was not a good use of the money and basically encouraged uh, various uh, Chinese companies to find good investments with those reserves. And that was when a lot of um, Chinese companies were going around the world and, uh, and many in particular came into the U.S. to, uh, say, New York to buy uh, trophy uh, invest, you know, assets like the Waldorf Hotel and, um, you know, or buying AMC theaters and things like that. And so um, it was quickly using up a lot of the reserves. And so people thought, oh, you know, if China runs out of reserves, then they're really in deep trouble. They wouldn't be able to manage working capital for their trade, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was why people thought um, there might be a fear there. And they also feared the fact that China's debt levels were rising and that there was a growing shadow banking system in China uh, in which a lot of state-owned companies um, would take out loans and then they would farm out the money to other players uh, that the bank didn't know about that could be risky players. Uh, you had local local governments also, um, you know, taking out loans and um, and so a lot of it was opaque, and so a lot of people thought that you could have a 2008-like 
Lehman moment in China that would basically knock uh, everyone out of business with a you know a debt bubble that would burst. So, so there was a lot of people fear mongering around China then around its economy, and so uh, the publisher basically approached me and asked me, um, you know, if I would write an answer uh, to to all that is out there. And so I agreed um, because I guess they had seen many of my other publications uh, disputing a lot of what's, what was going on at the time. And so I uh, basically put together a, a, a short book. They actually told me that I had to fit within a certain word limit. <laughs> and so I couldn't go over the word limit. But to make a succinct argument um, for why I believed it would or would not collapse. And what is the one piece of advice that you would offer to companies looking to do business in China? This is not just China specific. I think that anytime you're going into a new country to do business, you really need to have trusted partners. And usually you would want to know those people before you go into the country. So spending a lot of time with whoever you want to work with there uh, who can help you, you know, navigate the regulatory agencies and re- regulate all the, uh, navigate all the things that, um, that could go wrong. You want people with experience operating in whatever environment you're in. I can't thank you enough for being on the show, but before we end things, I think it would be remiss of us not to at least discuss what's going on and impacting and affecting everywhere in the world right now, which is the coronavirus. Can you just talk a little bit about what you're seeing and hearing and what's going on from your perspective? Well, I have a number of thoughts. (laughs) Uh, I don't even know where to start somehow, but there's been a lot of uh, talk about, yes, this would speed up uh, supply chain decoupling from China that since so many companies were hurt at ground zero and China's exports have clearly fallen off a cliff. Uh, This would spur more uh, decoupling and diversifying. Certainly, diversifying is never a bad idea. Uh, However, again, I would just emphasize the fact that it's much easier said than done because trying to recreate very sophisticated supply chains, especially around technology, is very, very difficult because it requires a lot of specialized knowledge uh, within supply chain. And, um, and then to find, you know, little companies to make the specific tiny parts that go into uh, the entire product uh, may not be available in other countries. And so, uh, again, I still think it's wishful thinking, despite the fact that it's a big problem here. And, even if uh, a company chose to uh, redirect some of their manufacturing to another country, as we've seen, this pandemic has been spreading very quickly. If a company decides to move somewhere else, there is no guarantee their disruption, uh, there won't be disruptions in the other country. In fact, uh, they're almost guaranteed to be uh, 
given that at this point, China is starting to um, get their manufacturing back online and people are starting to come back to work, whereas everywhere else in the world, um, things are shutting down. And so I think people will have to come to realize that we are basically one giant unit. Uh, there is no escaping, um, you know, trying to do damage to one country uh, and, and thinking that you could get away with it. it it's going to become obvious that uh, everyone is in the same boat. And so uh, what thinks one country is going to, you know, have the same effect all over the world. And while people should have realized this during the 2008 financial crisis, uh, maybe this is driving it home. And clearly the stock markets uh, can see that this is um, probably going to be worse than the financial uh, uh, crisis of, of 2008, given that that was uh, completely a human construct, a man-made thing, because financial system doesn't exist in nature. This, however, uh, is something that is dealing with the real economy that you cannot fix with just monetary policy. And so um, I think that this is going to be a much more serious situation. Anne Lee, author of What the U.S. Can Learn from China and Will China's Economy Collapse, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much again. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.